before the eyes of the world. Now look into space, to the moon, and to the planets beyond. This is The Space Shot, episode 437, a Skylab 50th extravaganza. Hey everyone, I'm John Mulnix and welcome to The Space Shot. In today's episode, we've got three incredible guests joining us for a discussion on Skylab's 50th anniversary. Before we get to that though, I've got some news on a book prize slash movie slash jewelry giveaway that I'm doing to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Skylab. From now until the splashdown of Skylab 3 on September 25th, make sure you sign up for the Space Shot Substack, say that 10 times fast, the link is in the show notes for a chance to win some cool prizes. I'll be drawing a name slash email subscriber every week from the launch of Skylab 3 until the end of September. The final two weeks will have some awesome prizes, like a signed copy of Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story, which I think is probably the fifth copy of that book that I've bought at this point, um, plus a Blu-ray of Searching for Skylab, which is an amazing documentary that you'll hear more about here in this episode, plus some fun space-themed coffee from a little coffee shop in Colorado, and I'll also be giving away some cool space-themed jewelry and stickers, which you can see more of at starlightandgleam.com. The first giveaway winner will be announced on July 28th, which is the 50th anniversary of the launch of Skylab 3, so make sure you sign up for the Substack today. Now, here's a super fun conversation that I had with Emily Carney, David Hitt, and Dwight Stephen Benecki. I do have a correction to make, and I feel bad that I have to... uh... You normally have everyone introduce themselves uh, before we start doing a podcast, and I forgot to this time. Um, Dwight's last name is actually Polish, so it's closer to, and I hope I don't butcher this, Bonietzki. Um, I'll have Dwight on again in the future so we can chat about the making of the documentary, um, Searching for Skylab, and also um, him and his background and what he does in the community at large. Um Everybody was just awesome to talk to for this episode. I really, really had a good time. Um, So apologies to Dwight for messing that up. I'm usually better about it because people always try to add extra L's or N's or I's to my last name. (laughs) Um, Lastly, the audio clip that you're about to hear is the prank that was played during Skylab 3. Owen Garriott's wife, Helen, recorded this bit that you're about to hear, and it's what we mention later on in the episode. Bob. Bye-bye. 
Skylab, uh, Houston, uh, we have you scheduled to inhibit uh, attacks here due to a little problem we had earlier today and the momentum not being quite an anomalous configuration. We'd like to hold up on that for a while. Now, here's the chat with Emily, David, Dwight, and myself. Enjoy. So today I am joined by uh, three of my favorite space historians and people here. Um, we've got Emily Carney, David Hitt, and Dwight Stephen Benecki. Did I say that right? Okay. You did. I should, good have, I should have checked before I like started, but okay. It's all good. It's all <laughs> <Okay>. good. <laughs> Um, so today we're going to be talking and focusing on the second manned Skylab mission, Skylab 3, which launched on uh, July 28th, 1973. Um, this was a really interesting mission. Uh, Alan Bean, Jack Lausma, and Owen Garriott were the second crew on the station. Um, and let's just kind of start it off with the launch being moved up. So that was kind of an anomaly in the spaceflight world. Usually things get pushed back. My, my memory of that mission starts with a thruster floating by the window. So uh, I'm, I'm useless before that. We can, we can start with that. I mean, like, cause launching early, I mean like that just kind of happened. Um, but the thruster floating by the window is a very uh, interesting point to kind of jump in with the crew, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah, they had a they had a pretty much a textbook launch. It was a bit uh, cloudy, um, similar to the first uh, when the space station itself launched. You didn't see it for that much longer after it left the uh, launch, uh, the cleared the tower, and um, you know, then while they were uh, uh, achieving orbit, suddenly uh, something floats by the window. <laughs> Not something you want to see. And that's no, that's that's bad. Like that's yeah, I think. It I think it was Jack Lausma who was like, hey, we got a thruster floating by the window. And and they were like, what? Like, <laughs> that's not good. And I think it turned out it was ice from the it was ice from the thruster, but it looked like a thruster floating by, which is it's kind of funny. But not the, the good news was it wasn't actually a thruster. The bad news was it really didn't matter that it wasn't a thruster, because in terms of. uh the, the the implications for the mission it really wasn't that much difference they uh the ice had frozen up uh inside the thruster had uh had floated out they knew that they had a leak and uh and having a leak in your thruster really isn't it really isn't any better than not having the thruster there at all so they uh they had to shut down that uh that quad and had to uh had to in space uh i was gonna say figure out how they they had trained for this i mean so they had you know some some uh you know ground knowledge of what this is like uh not exactly exactly the same as um doing it in space for the doing the real thing but so piloting it a piloting a uh, an apollo csm with uh with one quad shut down yes but it didn't end there it didn't end there <laughs> but but wait there's more <laughs> after they docked david or emily it was about a, what a week after they docked several days at least after they docked was so we, before we dock them, though, because that was uh, I, I loved hearing uh, Owen telling this story. Of, right. Yes. So so you can fly. It turns out if you're ever in this situation and you need to fly an Apollo CSM with uh, with one of the quads shut down, it, it's it's perfectly doable. You can do it. It's just the, the vehicle handles a, a little bit differently because, uh, you know, anything that you put into the controls, you get what you ask for. But then you also get a little something that you didn't ask for. And so there's a lot of. Uh, compensating for uh you know you're you're trying to go up and you're going up but a little also a little bit faster you're 
or you're, uh, you know, you're turning left, but also getting a bit of yaw or what have you. And, uh, and so they're coming up on Skylab. And, uh, and again, you got to keep in mind, this is, uh, this is 50 years ago, right? So, uh, so the technology then, not what it is today. They don't have a, uh, a range rate gauge, um, gauge on the, uh, on the spacecraft. They can see how far they are from Skylab. Um, but they don't know exactly how quick they're, uh, they're coming up on the thing. And so Owen is sitting in the, uh, in the, in the command module and he sees Skylab coming up and he's, uh, you know, this, this, this thing's coming up a little bit faster than, uh, than it should have. And, uh, so he's got his, uh, he's got his watch and he's got his, his pocket calculator and, uh, and he can see the range to Skylab. And so he's manually as they're approaching, <laughs> calculating how fast they're, uh, they're coming up on this thing. And then he's telling Alan Bean, who's, uh, who's flying the spacecraft, you know, that we're, we're, we're coming up kind of fast. And I was like, oh, no, we're good. We're fine. I, uh, I feel good about this. And then they keep closing in and, uh, and, uh, you know, and Owen's still sitting there with his, uh, with his calculator, punching in the numbers and, you know, and, and getting concerned and, uh, and telling how, you know, I don't know, really, you, you need to slow down. You're coming up with this thing too fast. <laughs> And I was like, no, 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 I got it. And so Owen's sitting there, and, and he's punching in the numbers, and he's checking the range, and he's doing the calculations, looking at his watch. And uh, and finally, he's like, no, we're, we're going in too fast. Doesn't bother telling Bean anymore. Um, he gets out of his seat and gets down behind the couches. <laughs> and uh, and Al Bean says, well, well, I had never seen him do that before, so... Uh, so I should probably take this seriously. Start slowing down, and uh, and they come in and and you know and make a uh, make a you know a perfectly fine docking. But uh, but Owen was telling me this story, and then when I was working on Bold Day Rise, he's telling the story of STS nine coming in at the end of the mission with the uh, with the space shuttle, you know, on fire. The computers on fire. <laughs> As, as, as they're coming in and uh, and landing the spacecraft, you know, John Young bringing the thing home safely, uh, landing the shuttle on fire. They get out, they turn back, they uh, they look at the spacecraft. Owen says, uh, well, huh, I've never seen it do that before. Um, so if you ever hear an astronaut say, I've never seen it do that before, <laughs> that's the, uh, that's apparently the thing these stories have in common. Be worried, be, be worried. Like that's, that's probably an off nominal situation. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's that's one of my favorite stories in the book. Um, I was listening to the audiobook version of it when I was driving this last week. In all places, Enid, Oklahoma, where one of my stores is. So I was listening to that nice. actually as I was driving out of Enid the other day. So that was pretty uh, fortuitous timing. Um, so yeah, now, now that the crew's docked, things, Dwight, you were starting to talk about things get a little weird. <laughs> It, it doesn't. It doesn't end there. Alan Bean, who's well known as being the best friend of TV cameras, uh, they turn the camera on as they're approaching Skylab. And what does the camera decide to do? The the wheel, the color wheel that was sending the sequential red, blue, green colors that were then composited on the ground to make color television, decides to jam and block uh, one third of the screen, right? And if I remember correctly, Alan Bean used exactly the same technique he tried on the moon. He got a hammer and whacked it. <laughs> but it didn't work <laughs> so they had this uh, like a black and white feed with half the, it looks like you know, basically you're shooting out the window and the bit of the window is blocking the, uh, the view but they uh alan bean and cameras and of course he was uh, knocked on the head by the dislodging 16 millimeter camera when apollo 12 uh splashed down so alan bean and cameras i i don't know i, I wonder don't know. where that camera anyway, is so uh, yes, on did. display 
That would be a funny thing to ask Shannon next time I'm at the Cosmosphere if they have the, that 16 millimeter camera. Just look for the one with the covered in blood. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh man. So they, they get docked eventually, technical malfunctions aside. Um, and then living and working in Skylab, they're the second crew to do that. What are some of your guys' favorite stories from that mission? And we can start at the beginning, the end of the mission. You want to jump in wherever. Um, yeah, just share some of your favorites. But I think I think Dwight was about to tell us in the, uh, about the weather um, about a week into the mission. So why don't you uh, let Dwight pick up there? Yes, that's right. About a week, several days after they they, uh, they docked, then suddenly all the master alarms trigger uh, with a propellant leak warning, uh, again from the, the uh, CSM. And so Alan Bean rushes into the, the command service module trying to figure out what's going on here. And that's when they realize there's some serious uh, problems happening with the RCS thrusters because um, Jack Lausman was uh, telling us the story where he, you know, he's sitting in front of the panel and just saying, I couldn't ignore any of those alarms. Um, and that's when they, they, they figured out uh, that there was some serious trouble with the RCS. And if I remember correctly, they organized a, uh, a, a conference with Chris Craft uh, advising them about the rescue mission, which is then a story into itself um, or unto itself uh, with regards to, to the second man Skylab crew because they were in a situation where – consideration was given to rescuing them because they couldn't have flown or they didn't they weren't sure if they could fly the command module back down to earth because of the, the thruster problems again not a situation you want to be in on a spacecraft so we're i'm losing count of how many we've had already for the second flight look this was actually a, a good situation so, though for uh, Vance and uh, Don Lynn, because it looked like they were going to get real close to going to space. And, you know, they've been waiting like God for eight years or so to go to space because they, um, yeah, they were in the 1966 astronaut class. So um, yeah, they went in the simulator and, you know, started working and stuff. And then um, to make a long story short, they found out you could ex actually re-enter with a lot of thrusters out. So they kind of worked their way out of a job. Um, unfortunately, they did so well that they proved that they did not need the job. So unfortunately, uh, they were stuck on Earth. But um, I think for Bran, though, um, he was already, I believe he was already selected for Apollo Soyuz. So, I mean, he was already, he was going to go to space in, a, in a, about a two years or yeah, around two years from that point. So it does have a sort of a silver lining. Lind, of course, waited for, God, 12 more years or something, something crazy. Yeah. Like I've, got, I've got footage of him that the BBC filmed during Apollo 11 where he's talking about, you know, when he hopes to fly. I'm thinking, wow, he had to wait quite a long time. I think, uh, yeah, like, like Bruce McCandless. Yeah, total of nine, 19 years he was in the before his flight. Yeah. But um yeah, yeah so essentially they did such a great job that they they pr proved that they didn't need the job, you know, sort of <laughs> so they ended up staying on on earth unfortunately and I think the um I think the 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 uh rescue vehicle I I, I could be wrong but I want to say the rescue vehicles on display at the Saturn V center 
at Kennedy Space Center. So if you go to Kennedy Space Center and you go in the Saturn V Center, um, if you're by the tail, the 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 party end of the uh, Saturn V that has all the nice engines, the F I believe the F1 engines. If you look like to your uh, right, you should see the rescue vehicle. So and it, it it's you can like walk right up to it and look at it and stuff. I'm sure it's not in the same configuration as it was back then. They probably pulled out a lot of of the good stuff in there, but you can actually view it. So um, and it's never been used. And of course, the same place has a has a uh, has a uh, seasoned uh, command module as well. It has Apollo 14, if you want to look at that. So it's got two of two uh, command modules in slightly different configurations. So but yeah, that's kind of a neat story. The Skylab rescue story. I always thought it, I always loved it because I read um, Vance Brand has actually a, a book and it's called Flying Higher and Faster. It's it's like his autobiography. And I read it and some of the he, he's very dry, like he, he has a very dry sense of humor. He's very uh, what's the word restrained. Uh, he's you know, in real life, he's very if you actually meet him, he's very sort of like quiet, you know, but he gets in some good digs, though. You just have to sort of wait for him. He gets in some funny jokes and that whole book is like, yeah. We, you know, I, I was getting excited. I, you know, I thought, man, I might go to space this time. And of course it didn't happen. So, yeah, because <laughs> he'd been on a bunch of backup crews by that time. He's so, ready yeah, to go. It's, it's a good read. If you can get <laughs> book, go read it. But yeah, it's just funny. So, yeah, it turns out they didn't need the rescue vehicle after all. But it was it's kind of a neat aside in the Skylab story that it could have been something that it kind of it would have been cool because it would have had five people on it, which is nuts. That's a lot of people. And yeah, um, if you've seen inside of the command module, it's not that big. So that would have no. <laughs> been kind of a sporty ride back. So, yeah. So they they because, uh, yeah, because you've got, you know, you've got three seats in Apollo command module. You've got to add two more seats to the thing. There's not a whole lot of room, so uh, so how do you do this? Well, the uh, you know the three seats are sort of suspended up from the floor of the spacecraft, and they've got shock absorbers, and, uh, and so the plan was you're going to put the additional seats by adding a second row, so that people are sitting underneath the uh, the, the, the primary seats. Well, like I said, they've got uh, they've got shock absorbers in these things, so that the, uh, the 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 couches would stroke. So if you came in, you know, if you came in. Um, if they had to land on land for some reason, instead of a water landing, it would have been a harder impact. Um, the Apollo command modules were designed for the seats to give, and, and they just kind of collapsed back towards the back of the vehicle in the event of a, uh, of a land landing. Well, okay, so now we're putting people in that area um, underneath the, uh, the couches where they, where they collapsed down. Um, so so, what, what, so, so what does that mean? And uh, the answer was, you know, so long as we land in water, we don't see a problem. Uh, so what if we don't land in water? And uh, and the answer was, yeah, that probably won't happen. Um, so, you know, they were flying with it. They were going to be flying had they flown the thing with a uh, with a little bit of knowledge of, you know, that there there is a scenario, not a likely scenario, but a scenario that uh, that maybe gets a little unpleasant. But yeah. worse than somebody you know, yeah. reclining their airliner seat all the way back. 
with nowhere to go. You know, I take that over the the couch stroking on Apollo any day. Like, uh, like Emily said, the way it played out was, uh, we, you know, it was kind of unintentionally borderline cruel that they put them in the simulator and made them first prove that they could fly to space. Would a rescue mission work? That was task one. They put them in the simulator. They make them prove, yes, it would work. Great. We can fly a rescue mission. We're, we're going to space. Okay, before you go to space, though, we're going to put you back in the simulator. We've got one more job for you, and that's proof that we don't need you to go to space. Again, like Emily said, they, they do such a great job. They work themselves out of a flight to space. Um, talk to, uh, I talked to both of them individually, and I loved this because uh, this was before Vance's uh, book came out. Um, talked to them both individually, asked both of them. You know, that, that, that had to have been like an emotional roller coaster. I mean, what were you feeling at the end of that? Were you, were you kind of, you know, disappointed <laughs> to, have, to have succeeded in the second task? And, and both of them, because they are astronauts and because they're astronauts from the 60s, both of them very stoically, you know, well, I understood that that was what needed to be done. And, uh, you know, and I was just proud to have been able to serve. But I think the other guy was disappointed. Uh, I always blame, blame it on the other guy. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. It is sad, man. Vance could have been the Vance could have been the guy in the shower who's been used in every every Skylab textbook ever. Oh. Every picture of Skylab since like 19, mid-1973. It could have been him. It couldn't. It may. It might have not been Jack after all. So who knows? Who knows how history would have gone if if this had happened, right? They really, you know, for all mankind, should uh, should hire us to do a spinoff movie of uh, <laughs> of yeah, like a oh man. But it would be like a sitcom, though. It wouldn't be like a dramatic. <laughs> it would be like kind of like Seinfeld, except like and then like Vance and uh, go up like hey. We're here to rescue y'all. It's like that. Uh, with space shorts. With space shorts. <laughs> yeah. There's one thing I must say. It's a good thing the CSM, because I've got a little friend here. He's saying, turn on about me, uh, that they did manage to stay up in Skylab uh, for SL3 longer because they did the student experiments. And my favorite part yep. of all this <laughs> Skylab 3 stuff is this fellow. <laughs> they had two spiders up there, Anita and Arabella. And uh, there, there were, I think, 20, David, you might know, Emily, uh, 26, 25 student experiments. That sounds about oh, right. Uh, sounds about right, yeah, because I'm trying to think of experiments total, but that's way, way more. Yeah, I think they had 25 or 26. I think in total they had, God, like over 300 or something, something insane. That's yeah. for each whole program that when you read what these these kids did you know you, it's a, it's amazing to think they're all grandparents now right <laughs> back then they were like 15 16 now they're in their late 60s uh if not 70s um and uh no late 60s um the, the of all the student experiments the one that is talked about the most is the spider experiment which was by judy miles who wanted to know if uh, spiders in zero, zero G would form their webs uh, in the same way as when they're on Earth or there would be differences. And uh, they were extensively studied by Owen Garriott as well, if I remember correctly. There's the, the sequence of photos where he's doing the televised um, uh, thingy, uh, the televised experiments uh, about how the uh, 
the spiders reacted in zero gravity. Unfortunately, both of them didn't make it back down to Earth. I mean, I, I feel like there's a long tradition of science experiments that Sadly, animals go up, but they don't always come back down, which is unfortunate. But, you know, it's helping push the boundaries of what we know about space. So that's a good thing, I guess. I was going to say, if you want to be depressed someday, read uh, Colin Burgess's Animals in Space, because uh, nope, it's do not it. a can't series of happy endings. I, I can't read that book. Yeah, I, I, I saw it time and I was like, nah, I'm good. I don't need this one. I love Colin. Nothing personal against Colin Burgess can't do this one sorry love you colin but nope i'm pretty sure my my kitty cat back there would have something to say about that if i was reading that book <laughs> um you need to read the cooper book that's the the best one on skylab oh god don't get me started on this come on say, no oh no i don't want to go squirt, squirt I, I, i'm pretty sure i just saw emily's eyes shoot lasers out at me <laughs> i mean this is for my podcast so i mean like i i don't have an explicit rating yet but like <laughs> i'm sure we've got some choice words for that book i, I would prefer would not awesome. to have to ha have to mark it as you yeah. know a mature rating <laughs> on spotify it's like an episode about space history <laughs> Uh, trust the Australian to bring that one up. <laughs> Explicit. <laughs> what happened on this one? There's one thing I will say just to, to cap off the uh, student experiments. I've, I've been lucky enough to speak to a couple of them. And I got to tell you, I feel like an absolute moron when I talk to these people because what they have done with their careers, you know, starting with these experiments in LA, oh, Kathy Jackson, for example, she's a lecturer at, I can't remember the name of the university, uh, all these kids ended up being very, very, uh, 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 oh, what's the word in English, um, proficient at the at the uh, careers they chose as a result of what they were doing on uh, on Skylab. Uh, and and um, I love hanging around these people, but I also uh, feel very uh, imposter syndrome-ish when I'm when I'm around them. <laughs> And actually, I, I saw an article somewhere where somebody tracked down um, the students, you know, like 50, basically, you know, half century later and kind of caught up with them. And if I can find that, I'll drop it in the show notes. But it's it's amazing the careers that they had. It wasn't always just science related. I mean, some of them wasn't one of them like a spy or something like that, I want to say. Like they had a very diverse career path from from, you know, the stuff that they did back in the 70s for that experiment. but. I want to read that. I'll, I'll have to find it. I I read it a while ago, so I I will include it in the show notes if I can find it. One of them is in Hawaii doing a geological surveying and so forth, studying the volcanic uh, activity on the islands of Hawaii. So uh, you know, he he's living the luxury life. He says he loves it. That out, sounds pretty uh, nice. <laughs> Anything with Hawaii and you know. <laughs> If people are further interested in the student experiments, there is a, a NASA book they released, I, I think, in the late 70s. And it's it's there. There's actually a really cool series. And it was I think it was published in 1978. But it's it's a big set of like a, a lot of the findings from Skylab, medical findings, Earth resources, etc. Et uh, a New Sun, uh, which is a really cool book. It's about. It's about some of the solar physics findings. Um, it's also part of that set. But there's a student experiment book as well, which is 
which is kind of neat if you're into that. Um, there's a lot of '70s fashions in there too. If you're if you're really into that, there's a lot of Rusty Schweiker with an afro in it, which is just mwah, amazing. So I no seriously though, that book is really cool, and I'm, I think it's probably available on PDF if you really want to read it. So if you if you you could probably find it on the internet on probably archives.org for free. But if you want the hard copy, I'm sure there's probably a few of them floating on Amazon as well. If you really want to read the book. That's Classroom in Space. Yes, A Classroom in Space. And Joe Kerwin is on the cover of the book with like a, a microscope. He's so, yeah. it So, yeah, it's a it's a and it's not a very big book. It's sort of a slim volume. I think the biggest volume in that whole series is the medical the medical findings. It's not all of the medical findings, but it's a big chunk of them. And it's, it's like, it's like enormous. So if you really want to read about the medical findings of Skylab, go get that book. But it's, I'm just letting you know, it's huge. And I didn't understand much of it because I'm not a doctor. So, because <laughs> I tried reading it and I'm like, yeah, that, oh yeah. I had no idea what they were talking about. So, but um, anyway, uh, I think I'm getting off topic. Uh, are we still talking about our favorite sort of moments from the mission and stuff like that? Yeah, you're good. I mean, Rusty Schweiger with an Afro. I mean, that could be a favorite moment of the mission. So I think we're, we're still on topic for that. So go Rusty ahead with, with your Afro. Uh, yeah, this was like the whole early seventies <laughs> for no, yeah, no reason. Just he had an Afro, but um, no, I think my favorite highlights from Skylab three and um, I, 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 and I, I know Dwight and David have seen this, and I know you probably have seen it too, John. Uh, it's available on YouTube. Is the tour that Jack Lausma gives of Skylab? Uh, Jack Lausma is awesome, of course. If you've ever met him, he's he's very personable. He's very he's probably I, I like to say he's the friend. I mean, most of the astronauts are very friendly, <clears throat> but he is like above and beyond one of the most you know friendly helpful astronauts there is you know he's really cool but uh he gives a a tour of skylab and it's really cool because you get a good like um he's he's a good tour guide he's he's funny you know he's and he's nice and stuff he's the perfect person to give the tour but another thing about it is you really get a picture of what it looked like in there and like how like how everything was laid out in skylab so if you ever want to find out like okay how was the actual space station sort of oriented and laid out that's a really good place to start and it is on youtube it's not the best quality but it's from 1973 um but uh yeah another it has a, a clip of a you know i think it was a uh garriott doing barbershop on uh alan bean's hair you know stuff like that like sort of little like uh candid moments of what it's like to live in space uh things like that I don't think this is part of the tour, but there's also the famous, uh, which I've referred to earlier in this podcast, the famous shower scene with Jack Lausma. I think <laughs> that shower photo has probably been more associated with Skylab than anything from the any of the three missions, which is kind of sad. But uh, there is actually like a, uh, I think what it comes from is they actually, Bean and Lausma actually did a demo of the shower and was to show people you know hey this is how we shower in space you know what fun and stuff uh the truth is i think that was the only time lausma used it because it was a real pain in the it was a pain to use it took like hours for you to use it because you had to squirt the water and wipe it up so it wouldn't 
um, it wasn't like very user friendly because you just don't have gravity in there, you know, and on earth you have a grab, you have gravity in the shower space, not so much. So it doesn't work like a earth shower, but, um, yeah, in reality, I think that was the only time they used it because they found out like sponge baths were just easier. I don't think Gary used the shower at all. That's not saying he's dirty or anything, but I think he was like, I ain't doing this. So he never used it. So, uh, yeah, so that that's sort of the the story behind those pictures. Because if you look at the pictures, you would think, "Wow, they were using that thing every day." They were not. Uh, they, I think they actually avoided it because they, it was just such a. I think they all tried it except for Garriott. I think Garriott was like, "I ain't doing this." So, um, but yeah, it was kind of more of a pain than it was worth. So I I don't think it was very popular. But they did do a demo of it because that was kind of like a a fun thing like wow it even has a shower you know that's so cool so they did demo it and unfortunately jack was the the model for that he was the supermodel of the world for that so i i mean so. the the picture of pete in the shower is pretty hilarious too so i mean i feel like everybody always talks about jack's picture but there's also pete just kind of yeah, yeah holding on to the <laughs> just as funny um and the, i'm glad you mentioned the tour because I'll, I'll link to those videos in the show notes too just the interior volume of skylab that to me like across all the missions is one of my favorite things about it is it was just massive um i i want to say like the interior like the pressurized volume of skylab in like one piece is basically what the international space station has give or take you know a little bit of, you know, cubic feet or cubic meters, however you measure it. But just the fact that they launched that one massive station just still kind of blows my mind. Yeah. And it, it remains the largest, I think, single object put in space and probably to come back from space as well. But, <laughs> I, um, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, the, the coming back to space part, that was the... Uh, uh, there was an anniversary of Skylab re-entering just a few days ago, um, as of the day we're recording this. Dwight, do you want to talk a little bit about <laughs> your connection with that? Well, you know, I, I remember vividly as a little boy, as it, it missed me, it missed me by about that much. Um, I remember going to bed the night that it struck and in Australia that we were part of the footprint, right? It was not guaranteed it was going to hit Australia. It was just we were in the flight path. We knew that. So they made a big deal about it the night before. I went to bed, which um, around about, you know, like 8 o'clock, it was a 10-year-old wood. It was a school day. I remember that. And uh, actually, that the the impact is where my interest in Skylab first officially started because there was a student that put in the principal's office an info poster about which was uh, titled Skylab is falling, and then listed everything that Skylab had done while it was up there. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm standing there reading it, and of course, got interested in all the uh, um, the the info about it coming back down. I remember when it hit. It was for Australia, it was huge because in those days, uh, you know, no internet, nothing. And this little town of Esperance suddenly became the focus of, of the world. Uh, it had 10,000 residents there when, when it impacted. And for them, it was a huge deal. Um, I, I was very lucky to get a uh, Yamatic recording that NASA had made of news telecasts in Australia when the thing impacted. Um, 
in most of the cases, this footage no longer exists in the TV archive. So I've got the like the surviving uh, material, and uh, the um, the thing that was the funniest thing they just set up like a shed because Esperance is not a big town; it's tiny, and uh, they they set up, set up a shed and charge people one dollar Australian dollar uh, to get in, fifty cents for kids, and they had like you know bits of metal and all that that was. Um, found and I was out there for the 40th anniversary to, to show the film searching for Skylab and uh, a lot of people came up to me and were saying oh you know I was 10 years old as well and uh, we were playing on the beach and we picked up this fiberglass we picked up this metal stuff everything was on the beaches and we just threw it away and I'm like what <laughs> and uh, the um, the one thing I, I must say it, it's um it's the most beautiful place on earth that I could imagine Skylab landing in as a final resting place. It is phenomenal. And there were people up on Wireless Hill that would have seen this thing coming in. You know, we, we interviewed this one farmer who was on his field seeing this thing, uh, the, the space station coming straight at him at uh, half past midnight. And he, he just said, uh, uh, I stood there and thought, well, the best place to go is jumping under my tractor, which wouldn't have done a thing to help him. Um and the the amount of debris that is still in really good shape, like, for example, the refrigerating unit, uh, I, I am pretty sure if they plugged it in, they could still get that thing to work. Um, there's a, a lot of artifacts that still have the soldering. You can see the wiring and, and the insulation and so forth, but the stuff is still intact. It's like... That thing has survived an impact, you know, coming through the atmosphere, um, heating to extreme levels, and yet if it's still there, something you can hold in your hand. Uh, there's bits of um, uh, fiberglass that have been melted down, looks like just little <laughs> chunks of charcoal and plastic. Um, uh, it's an amazing – or the the, um, the spheres, the, you see uh, – uh, photographs of these huge spheres i think they were the oxygen or the the um uh, what, what's the david you know um i think it might could have also been the propellant i'm not i'm not quite sure but these things are huge right one of them is intact the other one has been ripped open and and these that well, one is intact the other one looks as if a, a bomb went off in inside of it and and uh, ripped the thing open um there was <laughs> there was one uh, one and the other thing that the, the the residents were saying because it was coming in at supersonic speeds there were multiple uh, uh, sonic booms and the residents thought oh good god world war 3 has started because they they what had happened at midnight the radio stations and and um, i think it was norad had said the thing is impacted in the indian ocean uh, we're out of danger so people went to bed thinking, okay, there's nothing going to happen. Suddenly, multiple sonic booms and the, this debris hitting the tin roofs of all the, all the corrugated iron homes and sheds, and they had no idea what was going on. At the beginning, they're like, oh, oh, what was going on here? What's going on here? You know, multiple booms, big flash in the sky, this thing exploding into a fireball. Uh, and then it was like, hang on a second. And uh, if you look on, on YouTube, uh, Channel 2, Australian um, uh, News, has done a 90-minute um, uh, video segment of, of the day it impacted. And originally, people were calling in the radio station going, 
we just saw Skylab crash. What are you talking about? It's not coming down. It's coming down as I'm speaking to you. And even NASA were going, no, 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 you're all out of danger. And people were like, look, we've been on the phone trying to reach you. It's still coming down. And and that's when uh, the, the guys at NASA were like, oh, and there is footage of them in mission control getting the telephone calls from the um, the emergency rescue services in Western Australia that were, were saying, uh, look, we are getting reported sightings and Channel 9 actually videotaped this thing coming in from a, the top of those TV studios in Perth. They actually videotaped it as it was uh, crashing into in, in Australia. Um, you know, it's, it's a telescopic shot. It's still in the sky. Um, in, in the film, we used a computer-generated uh, approximation of how that would have looked. Uh, but they they did actually shoot that. It's like wow, you know that was a spectacular thing. And uh, uh, just to, uh, for me, I I think Emily and David, you probably had the same uh, thoughts. Skylab was a failure because it re re-entered Earth, and it was right up until we we interviewed uh, Mark Pastana for for the film, who worked at NORAD where he said, you have no idea how much information we gained from heavy objects coming back down to Earth. That was anything but a failure. What we learned from that allowed us to prepare for the next time that this sort of thing happened. And my opinion from that day, that was like, okay, I, I was already pro Skylab. My opinion flipped. And there's no way I'll refer to Skylab as a failure. No way. Well, and I know like just for me, like when it's been mentioned in history classes, if at all, it's just like, oh, yeah, Skylab, and then it burned up, and everybody had their hats, and that's basically all it was. But, like, going back to, you know, the the crewed missions of it, it was anything but a failure. I mean, from the launch of the station to the initial fix with the parasol, and then with the second crew installing the tent pole, this proved so many things that we could do in space – that are not possible without humans. So for me, I, I, that's why I love it. I mean, one of the many reasons, but. <laughs> so I want to tangent on that for just a second. Cause uh, you know, so the, one there's, you know, there's, there's the misperception that Skylab had an uncontrolled re-entry. Um, you know, of course the reality is there were people in the control room the entire time. You know, my favorite example of that is uh Astronaut Bonnie, Bonnie Dunbar, before she was an astronaut, she was actually one of the uh, the flight controllers, you know, bringing in Skylab. Um, the software, I mean, this is kind of neat to me, the software that was used for Skylab's reentry was written, you know, a few miles from where I lived at the time. So you've got, you know, me living, living, you know, near where, uh, where they wrote the software that brought it in, you know, right on top of right by where Dwight lived at the, uh, at the time, you know, and now we're on the same zoom call, you know, 40 something years later. Um, but yeah, that, 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 you know, there's, there's perception that it was the failure, you know, and, and the desire to, to rectify that. And, you know, I mean, the reality is, you know, for uh, for our generation, um, you know, if you say the word Skylab, um, you know, for, for, our, for our generation, the three names that come first to mind are, uh, you know, are on this call, the uh, the people most likely <laughs> of our generation to be tagged on Twitter when something about Skylab is posted are, uh, are currently on this call. Um, the, the three people of our generation who have spent the most insane amount of time writing about and talking about and making a movie about a space program that like we really don't have any significant memory of <laughs> are all are all here um 
I would love to hear y'all's version of, uh, you know, of, of, of why. Uh, do you, you get asked why a lot? <laughs> well, uh, Emily, you were born in 78. You, you were born in 78, so you were one year old when it, when it crashed, not even, or? I can, I mean, I'll start if you want. Um, oh, I guess what brought me to the Skylab story is I have very vague, like very vague, like I was uh, one when Skylab crashed down and I have very, like I said, extremely vague memories of when that was going on because it was a big new story and people were legitimately like thinking, oh my God, this is going to crash on my house and stuff. Like, I, I mean, they had a... I don't remember this part of the story, but they actually had the EAS system, the emergency, you know, system like, okay, Skylab's down, everybody. Like, yeah, I mean, it was a big, it was a big deal. <clears throat> I mean, there was a lot of, uh, you know, it, it's kind of embarrassing now because really it wasn't much of a, wasn't much of a danger. And thankfully it didn't hurt anybody when it, when it landed on parts of Australia, but it really wasn't much of a danger to land or anything. You know, most of it probably hopefully went in the Indian ocean. But, um, so that was my first really vague memory of Skylab, like, you know, it coming back down. And, um, uh, and I remember a few years later, um, I lived not really far away from the space coast. So, Whenever there was a shuttle launch, me and my, you know, I would go outside and watch the early shuttle launches. And this was before, you know, this was pre-Challenger. You know, this was when the shuttle program was really first starting and starting to, you know, pick up some speed. And I, I, I was, so I was obsessed. I was a space nerd. And I would, you know, my mom, my, my, my parents would get me like, you know, space books and stuff like that, you know, to sort of encourage it. And I remember reading the space books and, I can't remember what book this was. I couldn't tell you, but it had a thing about Skylab in it. And I was like, whoa, that looks really cool. You know, it looked kind of like a spider. I thought it was really cool, uh, but I knew, but I, I knew it was a space station and people lived in it and it had pictures and the, it had the shower picture. It had pictures of, you know, I think, I think it had the picture of, uh, of uh, Ed and, and Jerry Carr where he's like, you know, the the picture where you know Ed's being held up by a you know Jerry Carr's finger, stuff like that, and it looked like a lot of fun. I was like, wow, this is really neat, you know. And I'm about five seeing this, so I'm really little, you know. And I didn't have any technical knowledge whatsoever about Skylab. All I knew it was a it was a space station, and it looked really cool. So I think I had I put pictures of it on my wall when I was a kid, you know. And I just thought it was the coolest looking. I just thought it was cool like i i can't explain it um it was just a totally nerdy fixation of mine like you know i can't explain why i i thought it was so cool i, I, I think, think we I get like, that on this we get that yeah it's hard to explain <laughs> because I, don't, I can't there wasn't really a specific reason i just thought it was like wow this looks really neat and i thought the pictures from the program looked cool. Like they looked like they were having a lot of fun in there and they were having a lot of fun in there. They looked like they were just, you know, enjoying the space that they had and everything like that. And, um, as I got older and I got more into, in a space flight, you know, I read some books about Skylab and including homesteading space. And, uh, I really just fell in love with the program all over again because I was like, man, why isn't this, not being, you know, talked about, you know, that it's not, you know, it, it, and I think 
part of that is because it occupies a weird sort of a weird point in space history, you know, which was the 70s. Um, you know, it was between the lunar landings, which were spectacular, you know, and not to take credit from what they did, but, you know, lots of, you know, you know, very, you know, spectacular and the shuttle, which was also really spectacular, you know, and I think Skylab and Apollo Soyuz are kind of in that middle part where it's like, yeah, we're just going to space, whatever, you know, and it, it's not as spectacular to a lot of people. And to me, it's really amazing. But, you know, to most people, they're like, nah, whatever. They weren't going to the moon, you know, and stuff like that. But um, I, I just think it. I so as I got older and I started reading about it, you know, and, and I just started falling in love with it all over again. And then I started going to like, you know, astronaut scholarship foundation events and stuff like that. And I started to talk to the guys who had either worked or flew on Skylab, you know, at, and um, uh, here's where I get started on. Okay. I'll keep this sh blessedly short, but um, I remember one of the first crews I talked to uh, as a crew, as an intact crew was, I think Skylab four. And it was, you know, when Pogue and Carr were still around and I, that was at the point where I was like, okay, this mutiny crap has got to be untrue because these guys are just totally normal and cool. Like there's no attitude like they're not, you know, that I'm not seeing what other people wrote about whatsoever. You know, these guys are just really cool and helpful and, and a lot of, and they seem like fun guys, you know, like Pogue was really funny. Ed is funny as hell. Um, you know, Carr is really cool and calm. He, he's like kind of the epitome of a Marine, you know? So I started to sort of talk to the guys from the missions and they were just freaking awesome. You know, all I, 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 I never got to speak to Conrad, unfortunately, cause he, he died before I got the opportunity, but I mean, way too young. Yeah. He died really young, Yeah, way, way too young, but the rest of the guys I talked to and they were just so freaking cool and, and helpful. You know, I mean, if you had a question about anything, so really that's what got me uh, into Skylab as a kid. Uh, very, you know, I just thought it looked cool. And as an adult, I fell in love with it sort of from a completely like a different perspective. I, I really fell for the people who worked and flew on that program because I just was like, these, these, these guys are so cool. And you just don't hear as much about what they've done, you know, I mean, and they deserve, they deserve to have their story put out there and in, in some way because you just don't hear about it as much i mean we've heard of uh, i'll close with this you know we've heard a million times about you know apollo 11 and that's not to that's not a diss against apollo 11 but there's not many stories you can retell again about that and it's like brand new it's fresh you know and with skylab i feel like everything you hear about that program is brand new you know <laughs> because it's just not talked about as much so that's really what I've gotten, why I love the program, and I'll probably continue. Uh, there's really nothing that won't get me to not like it ever. I'll, I'll probably be obsessed with it until the minute I croak. So that's really all I've got. I gotta, I gotta tell you, uh, David here christened me uh, a, a very endearing nickname, Captain Ahab, um, <laughs> and it came about. And this leads, this leads into another. Uh, I'm sure all of us find it one of the favourite moments in Skylab. Um, there was a prank that uh, Owen Garriott played on the ground uh, using 
his wife's voice that was pre-recorded via the private communication uh, uh, channel, and they recorded it on one of the, the tape recorders they had there to listen to music and so forth on. And uh, she pretended she was on Skylab. And this audio, I tried to find it. David hadn't heard it. Emily, I don't think you ever even heard it, right? And uh, this is right before we, we went out to, to Huntsville to, to speak with Owen. And I thought, I've got to find this. <laughs> so David goes, if you can find it, that'd be great, but I don't think you can. <laughs> uh, how many hours was it where I go, hey, David, you'd never guess what I found? <laughs> the number of times Dwight was working on that movie that he would send me a message on Facebook and say, hey, look, do you have any leads at all on blank? Like I'm looking for... <laughs> You know, I'm looking for for <laughs> Shepard dressing down the uh, the Skylab Four crew. I'm looking for the uh, for the tape of uh, you know of of Helen um, pretending she's on Skylab. I'm looking for the video of this, and I'm like, I, you know, I, I have never seen it. I have never heard anybody acknowledge that it exists. And then you know, like the next day, Dwight's like, oh yeah, I've got it. I mean, it's just, I- <laughs> and the best the best was right when I did the. Um, the Skylab 4 uh, um, mission reports, I wrote to Jerry Carr and I said, look, I'd like to send you a copy. <laughs> and, you know, I explained the story and he goes, I really look forward to reading the book, Captain Ahab. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And I went, I've done it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Thanks, David. <laughs> the, wor- the worst was I heard a, uh, a story, and, I'm, and uh, you know, we, we talked about the rating on this podcast, but a great story about the testing of the um, <clears throat> the waste management system, the uh, the space toilet on uh, on 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 Skylab, and uh, and you know, and, and it's a story that even if I had known it when I was writing homesteading, it couldn't have gone in homesteading. But it's a uh, it's a great story, and uh, so I had to share it with Dwight, and Dwight's like, "Yeah, I've got the video." So now I really <laughs> want to hear that, but <laughs> I even Maybe found the audio from the conference where they're explaining how it all works. <laughs> oh, and the best thing is the film runs in reverse <laughs> you spoil the ending i'll tell you later john there I, that's that's okay that's I, all you need <laughs> actually cut that out cut that out let david explain it sorry sorry don't worry about my room yeah i was like whoa and there's like oh god i don't need to see this okay everybody's got a poop i mean it's it's funny so I mean, you just gotta laugh about it this has nothing to do with number two but um or number one but they also tortured poor ed gibson in the name of science for skylab four so there's pic there's actual pictures of him that they drew before the mission of his posture and you can tell he's just like i've had enough of this crap like his expression is just like but um they drew pictures of his posture based on i think they were based on photos and some of the photos are available in archives and I will never share them because he's not wearing much and he looks totally irritated. So it's pretty funny. So that, I uh, mean, the that, things you do to go to space, I mean, yeah, he got to it, go to that space. Seems exactly. pretty t- yeah. I mean, that, yeah. But they tortured that, that oh, child before and during Skylab four. God bless him. We'll we'll have to talk about that later this year for Skylab four. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Just any final thoughts, I guess, for Skylab 3. I mean, there was tons of EVAs. There was, what, three separate EVAs, I think, to get film from the Apollo telescope mount. Um, they installed the twin pole sun shield. I, there's so many highlights from this mission. I feel like you can you know, 
wherever you shake a stick, you're you're hitting something <laughs> for Skylab Three. It was. Uh- the, the the coolest thing, uh, speaking to Jack about the spacewalks, he said that was the best part of the whole the whole time he was up on Skylab. Yeah, you know, he just looked forward to it, and he said, you know, you, you go out there and uh, you look for reasons to stay out there longer. So uh, there's a couple of instances on on the um, audio transcripts where I'm hearing uh, Jack going, oh. Uh, the story, I think we've got a story, Musgrave. I think, you know, we've got a blah, 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 and it's going to take a little longer to fix. And I'm going, I wonder if that was true or not. <laughs> I I can't blame Jack for doing that. I mean, if, you, if you've got that kind of view, <laughs> hard, to, hard to beat that. You know, you've got you've got the Apollo guys who, uh, like, you think are uh, uh, holy ground, you know, you, that they are not human, right? And... When uh, when there, there's a, a sequence of Jerry Carr talking in in the film, where you know the door opened to go outside, and he just says, "Oh, do I really want to do this?" And it's like for me, that was like this guy is a you know human. He's looking out the window, going, well, "You know, be careful what you wish for, because you might get it." <laughs> and and or like Ed Gibson uh, always says, you know, "Oh, I hope that uh, Newton fellow was right." <laughs> Yeah, Alan Bean's description in uh in homesteading of going out for the uh for the EVA because you know he's he's of the Skylab three crew of the second crew the only one that's been on an EVA before because he's he's you know walked on the moon in Apollo twelve and uh, and just describing that difference of Apollo twelve you know you're there on a surface it's it's technically a spacewalk but it's like going outside versus Skylab. You know, it's like climbing out on the wing of a plane, and uh, just his description of what it was like. You know, when the uh, when the hatch opened and he's first egressing the uh, the spacecraft is uh, is kind of incredible. To me, the the legacy, I guess, of Skylab Three is um, they were they were called the Super Crew because they got a ton of work and 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 and, and then some. Um, I think they reached one hundred and fifty percent of their goals. And um, and we'll talk more about that on the Skylab Four episode because yes. there's kind of some leakage over from that setting a benchmark. Correct. <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about that on the next episode. Mm-hmm. But um, seriously though, Skylab Three, uh, they did an incredible amount of work in space, and not only that, um, I think out of all the three Skylab crews and. And I, I don't like to pick a favorite. That's like asking God, which which of your kids do you like the most? You know, or which which niece or nephew do you like the most? You know, you love all of them, but they just had a ton of fun up there. Like I, I think Alan Bean just kept everything um, really sort of you know very light. You know, he, he's you know he he was somebody who um, would listen to like you know sort of inspirational like tapes to to get in, you know, he would try to get inspired, you know, and things like that. And he, he did a so, kind of like self-help tapes, you know, which is, which is really cool. But he, I really feel like he kind of set the tone for the whole mission. And if you look at the, what they were doing and they seemed to have a, a lot of fun, you know, it was, I mean, they were serious about their job. I don't want to make it sound like they were just chilling up there, but they, they, you know, if you look at like even the Skylab tour, you know, you can tell Jack Lousman was having fun. You know, he's having a good time. He's, you know, it's not really super, you know, heavy or anything like that. So that to me is a legacy of Skylab 3. And plus they did a ton of incredible work. You know, they they maintenance the space station. They put up the twin pole sunshade, which was not an easy feat uh, at all. You know, I mean, it was 
they still weren't meant to do spacewalks in that area. So that wasn't like, you know, yeah, we'll just go outside and put up a, a blind, you know, some Venetian blinds or something like that. It's no, not like the ISS was, is now. No, you know, there's not handrails exactly. everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't made for that. So they, you know, this was not an easy task. So they really did work very hard. But I don't know. I think the legacy for me is just they had a they had fun and they got a lot of stuff done at the same time. And they really excelled. They were showing, you know, how sort of the I'm trying to search for the right words here. The evolution of, okay, we're going to space for a couple, you know, a few weeks to, okay, now we're actually going to try to live in space and see how this works, you know, day to day and, you know, and, and see how we can do this. So, uh, and yeah, it set a precedent for what we know today is the ISS as well. You know, they do similar, not the same, but they do a lot of similar things, you know, whereas they're learning how to live in space for long periods of time, which is you know, different from obviously, you know, Apollo was like seven to 14 days, you know? So yeah, that to me is the legacy of it. And when we discuss Skylab four, there's a lot more to discuss, you know, as far as working and living in space, you know, and, and schedules and how to work things out like that as well. So, but this was sort of the evolution of, okay, now we're going from camping trips to actually learning how to do this for, you know, six weeks at a time or eight weeks at a time. So that to me is Skylab 3's legacy. You know, it was awesome. <laughs> okay, I'm done. <laughs> Emily talked earlier about Skylab gets forgotten partially because, and I, and I 100% agree with this because it's, it's, you know, it's right in the wake of the moon landings. I mean, like six months after people were walking on the moon, it's right before the space shuttle program. Shuttle flew for 30 years. So people, you know, it, it's, it's, there's a lot of history written about a lot of history. Um, a hundred percent agree that that Skylab kind of gets lost between you know these two giants, but I also think Skylab is underappreciated somewhat because it's hard today to remember that we ever didn't know the things that that Skylab taught us that we ever needed to you know to know what happens if you live in space for two months. I mean, like that was ever a thing we needed to learn or you know needed to know you you can fix things on a spacewalk. Like that was a thing that once upon a time. We didn't know. And Skylab is the program that taught us everything that's been the foundation of, you know, 50 years since. And in that light, the second crew kind of is 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 even more than the others, because watching it, you wouldn't think you were learning anything. I mean, it's the most smooth, the most just straightforward American space mission, you know, it, certainly compared to, uh, you know, to Apollo before it. Certainly compared to the other two Skylab missions, you know, compared to the early shuttle that can you live in space? Yeah, we're going to go look, we're live in space. Can you do work on spacewalks? Yeah, we're going to do that. I mean, and, and they, they just, and they do. Can you work in space? Yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to do 150% of it. Like there's no, there's no drama about it. There's no, there, you know, the, the, the excitement of, oh my gosh, can they do this? Isn't there? Cause they just like, they go up there and they do the thing that they're there to do and they come back. And I mean, like I said, you look at <laughs> You look at missions, you know, going either way before or after it. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's there's no STS-1. Oh, my gosh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the tiles fell off. And there's no, you know, Skylab 3, you know, ground to, uh, to space issues. And there's no Skylab 1, can we, uh, or Skylab 2, can we, uh, you know, can we save the, the uh, you know, the space station? I mean, it's just, they go up there, they do the thing, and then they come back. But up in going up there and doing the thing and coming back, 
they show 100% conclusively, hey, you know what? We can go up there, we can do the thing, and we can come back. And I mean, and that's why we have Space Shuttle. That's why we have Space Lab. That's why we have ISS is because we know, hey, yeah, you know what? You can go up there, you can do the thing, you can come back. I like to refer to something that this wise man once said. Um, he, he's pretty uh, far up in the Skylab community. Uh, he said to me once, uh, Skylab is the first time that orbit becomes a destination. That sounds familiar. Yes. <laughs> David, David Smack, David Punch, David Hit. David Hit, that's his I name. Still, I never say that anymore. <laughs> like, that's that's yours. That, that little Bon Mott is purely for searching. Like, like I, say, I say the same thing in other ways when I do other talks, but uh, but but that is reserved for you. <laughs> You know, there, there's a, a, they did a lot of testing on uh, on SL3. Uh, you know, the one that gets forgotten is uh, the, um, the, uh, the the MMU, the Man Maneuvering Unit, uh, developed by Bruce McCandless and two other gentlemen. Names escape me uh, at the moment, and uh, he, he worked to get that thing in an operational format that they could test it inside Skylab because Skylab was so huge they could do it without exposing the astronaut to the uh, dangers of being out in space. And it, it, these sort of things, and, and it, the, the MMU was then subsequently used on, on the shuttle. Um, and, and, you know, probably one of the most uh, iconic photos of NASA is Bruce McCandless in that uh, jetpack. Um, what a hundred hundred feet away or three hundred feet from from uh, couple, from the couple shuttle. hundred, yeah. And you, you just think, whoa! <laughs> uh, whether I could do something like that, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, in, incredible stuff. Uh, just the, the entire, or observing the hurricanes and uh, and and ocean currents and so forth that they were doing up there. That was the first time we started looking inwards. You know, everybody was like, prior to that, we're going exploring uh, to the moon or to outer space or sending probes to Mars. And with Skylab, they turned the cameras back down on Earth for the most part. There was the solar uh, investigations, but for the most part, Skylab was up there to be a laboratory in the sky. And they were looking at Earth, uh, observing droughts. Uh, um, in Africa and and so forth, and uh, I think the thing that hit me the most from from the legacy of Skylab was being at the STEC Open Day in I think it was 2016, 2017, where uh, Dirk Filmont, I think his name is, uh, one of the Belgian astronauts for ESA, he said, uh, "We do not have enough scientists to analyze all the data that they connect, collected on Skylab." They still haven't gone through the data collected on Skylab 50 years later because they don't have enough specialized scientists to actually analyze it. And it's like, whoa. And, the, you know, the Russians were even thanking the Skylab crew for having all that open data that they could plan their MIR missions. Uh, yeah, the, the, this is the, the Skylab is the foundation of everything to do with orbital uh, living in space that, that came afterwards. It's... Uh, it's, it's very underappreciated. And this is like why I love history. Me personally is I, I've been reading a lot of books by Neil Postman lately. So it's been getting me on this whole thing about like the history of technology and 
how when we're learning, like we learn about biology or chemistry or computers or something, learning the history of that science is important. And that's what's so cool about Skylab is it's literally the science of how humans live and work in space. And we have the history of that for future generations to study, which is just so cool. And, you know, we're at 50 years since the first mission. What What's it going to be in 100 years? You know, I'm sure those those lessons that were learned in Skylab are still going to be applicable then. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, if we're around, hopefully, knock on wood, be around in 50 years for that, that next uh, anniversary. But it's just wild to think about how we literally learned, you know, orbit was the destination. As, as David and Dwight, you've said, that's, that's so cool to me. So I think that's, a, that's as good a point as any to end on for Skylab 3. We'll be back later this year for a little Skylab. Well, not little. We may have to break Skylab 4 up into two parts. I, thank you for doing this. This is the first time the three of us have, have ever done a Skylab conversation like this. And this has been so much fun. Yes, thank uh, you. Just getting it's cool. to do this, so we appreciate you yeah. having us and uh, and and letting us have this chat. And always, always a pleasure to talk to you about it. Thank you, guys. Been a lot of fun. If I may paraphrase David Hitt, John Mulnix is the first time that the three of us get <laughs> a destination. Oh, it didn't work. It was funny to have in there. <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, we'll do this for Skylab Four. Um, it, it's not called. Skylab anymore. It, it resides in Australia now. So, and this is an old joke, and it's hilarious for me at least. It's still, um, it's called Skylab. I was going to say for the next one, you need to recast <laughs> me with Francis French doing his David hit talking about Skylab impression, and uh, that'll be far more entertaining. Oh my gosh, we could do impersonations of each other. That'd be great. <laughs> or like an Australian slang. Yeah, exactly. have, like, have some slang for that. Cause like I've seen some pretty hilarious stuff. I've heard some hilarious stuff. So we may have to include that in with uh, the next one. <laughs> Skylab is the first time that orbit becomes a destination. <laughs> Imagine if Phil Chapman had actually gotten a, a- Gotten a chance to play in Skylab. That would have oh, been. Oh, going down there, boys. That would have been fun. That would have been beautiful. Again, I mean, if anyone from uh, Apple is listening, I, I, you know, we're available for consulting for for all mankind. But I think sadly they've already moved past that era in the alternate timeline. So I think we've missed our shot for that, spin-off. unfortunately. But spinoff is the answer. Spinoff, yeah. There we go. I mean, it's this is doable. Oh, man. Well, thank you, guys. Uh, thank you all for coming on. This has been awesome. Thank you. Looking forward to the next show. Yes, thank Thank you. That's it for this episode. We're going to do another deep dive for Skylab 4 later this year, so make sure you keep your eyes on the feed and the substack for more details. I'll be announcing it beforehand, so there's time for everyone to get questions sent in if you would like to ask one. Let me know about your favorite Skylab mission or highlight. Drop me a line at john at thespaceshot.com or send me a message on Substack. Speaking of Substack, be sure you sign up. The link is in the show notes. You're going to want to be signed up so you can get entered to win some cool prizes as we celebrate 50 years of Skylab. 
I'd also appreciate it if you could leave a review through your podcast platform of choice. It really helps other people find out about the show. And until next time, I'm John Molnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.